Epiphany Church in Ligonier, Pennsylvania. On Friday a thief, on Sunday a king, laid down in grief, but I walk with the key to hell on that day, the firstborn of the slain, the man Jesus Christ laid. Welcome to Epiphany's Sunday Sermons, a podcast ministry of Epiphany Anglican Fellowship in Ligonier, Pennsylvania. Our church exists to help people discover and rediscover the love of God in the Christian gospel. To learn more about our church, visit our website at epiphanyligonier.org. The most famous track from Bob Dylan's three-year born-again Christian phase of music, right? Remember when Bob Dylan was a born-again Christian for three years? And uh, the most famous track to come out of that is arguably his Grammy-winning tune, You Gotta Serve Somebody, right? It's the first track off of his album Slow Train Coming, and it's really straightforward for a Dylan song because really he's just having fun coming up with creative and slant ways rhymes while he sings. It's a lot of rhyming, a lot of clever writing, but it's not opaque like some of his other music. And every verse of the song is simply a look at the wide variety of life circumstances that we may find ourselves in, followed by Dylan's insistence that no matter what life circumstance you're in, you're going to have to serve somebody. Like he, he sings this, he sings, you may be an ambassador to England or France. You may like to gamble. You might like to dance. You might be the heavyweight champion of the world, and you might be a socialite with a long string of pearls. And he goes on later on to sing, you know, you might wear cotton or you might wear silk. You might like to drink whiskey. You might like to drink milk. You might like to eat caviar. You might like to eat bread. You may be sleeping on the floor or sleeping in a king-size bed. And then what's the chorus if you know it, right? But you're going to have to serve somebody. Yes, indeed, you're going to have to serve somebody. It may be the devil or it may be the Lord but you're going to have to serve somebody. And that song won a Grammy, believe it or not. Um, so people liked it and, and responded well to it. But you know who didn't like it was um, John Lennon, the activist, former Beatle, right? He hated the song. It caused him a lot of sort of exter- internal angst. Uh, he went home and, and ranted into his audio diary and said things like, well, Bob Dylan wants to serve somebody now. I guess he wants to be a waiter. And then he recorded a song in his in his basement as a retort to Dylan's song called You Gotta Serve Yourself. <laughs> and it was a parody track where he was just being angsty about um, Dylan's success. And uh, he, he never released the parody track. The only reason we know that John Lennon wrote it was because it got released 18 years after his death in an anthology collection. But um, the idea that Dylan puts forward here, You Gotta Serve Somebody, is I think at the heart of our reading today from Acts that you got to serve somebody. Who are you going to serve? And uh, in our reading from Acts today, you know, let's keep this theme in mind, who are you going to serve? Because we're going to talk about this idea of leadership, who's the boss, who's in charge. We're going to talk about that today because that's the theme of Paul's sermon that we read today. And as far as the Bible tells us, this is the first sermon he really ever preaches. Uh, it's one of the first sermons that at least is recorded or written down in the book of Acts. In our sermon today, Paul is going to ask his audience, a, a mixed crowd of Jewish believers and Gentile believers in the God of Israel, 
a question famously put forward by Tony Danza and Judith Light across nine years in the 1980s with their uh, famous TV show, Who's the Boss? <laughs> right? If you got to serve somebody, then who's the boss? And Paul's answer to that question may not be as surprising as you would think being in church on Sunday, but I think the insights behind Paul's answer, why we have the boss that we have, they highlight a uniquely Christian insight about power and authority and the nature of God that we would all do well, I think, to internalize. So let's dive in. Let's talk about this Paul guy. This is the first time in the book of Acts that as we've studied it together this summer so far that we are interacting with Paul. Uh, Paul, you may know, you may not know, he is a Christian convert from the Pharisee school of Judaism. And uh, he was the last person anybody would have expected to become a Christian. When we first met Paul back in Acts chapter 7, he is participating in the stoning and the martyrdom of Stephen. That while everyone else is picking up the the rocks to hurl in um, this public execution, um, Saul, Paul, this this guy preaching about Jesus today, is holding everybody's coats. uh, Meaning that he's sort of the, the, I'm here, yeah, go get him guys, I'll hold your coat, swing hard, hit him hard, kind of. That's the idea. And as we learn about Paul in the New Testament, this Paul guy is responsible for writing about a third of the New Testament. Uh, By his own admission, he was one of Christianity's early antagonists. He was sort of like an inquisitor. He would go throughout the Judean region to find Christians, and he would charge them with heresy and bring them to trial in Jerusalem. And uh, he was the sort of primary antagonist to Christianity until on the way to Damascus to, to, again, continue his inquisition, Jesus appears to Paul in a flash of blinding light. Uh, Paul is thrown from his horse. He's knocked to the ground. He's blinded, literally blinded. He can't see. And Jesus says to him, Saul, why do you, well, Paul, why do you persecute me? And um, Paul regains his sight, but only when a Christian in the town of Damascus actually lays hands and prays for his healing. And so what do you do, right? Um, when you have such a life-changing moment where you everything that you thought was morally right was morally wrong and your entire world gets turned upside down, well, he um, basically he's baptized. Paul is baptized immediately. But then he takes a three-year sabbatical to figure out his life. <laughs> uh, he Then he returns to Damascus. He begins a preaching ministry. The local leaders of the church, they bless his preaching ministry like Paul meets with all the apostles. And eventually they say, Paul, you, um, we've been praying about this and God has told us you are a special person who has a special mission and God wants you to go out and, and, and do this mission work. And so Paul is commissioned to travel with a group of other Christians from city to city, from nation to nation, from synagogue to synagogue uh, to share the news of Jesus' resurrection because everybody needs to know. And our reading today is Paul's sermon to a community called Antioch in the region of Turkey called Pisidia. You know how like every state in America has like a Springfield in it, you know, that's like a thing. Lots of states have the have a city called Springfield. Um, Antioch is like the same way. There are a lot of places called Antioch in the ancient world. And the one that Paul is preaching in today is in southwestern Turkey. And, and so what we're going to see in this sermon as we go through it together now is that Paul has a great question that he puts before the congregation uh, there. He asks, who are you going to serve? Because you got to serve somebody. Who's the boss? Uh, he, he frames his presentation of who Jesus is by asking those questions. And so here's the beginning of the sermon. I'll read it to you now. Men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. 
The people, uh, the God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. With uplifted arm, he led them out of it. And for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. All this took about 450 years. So from the very beginning, right, Paul begins uh, to sort of frame the question of uh, Israel's leadership in terms of who's the boss. And he talks about the forefathers of Israel. He references them, uh, people like uh, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Moses and Joshua. And, and the idea is from the very beginning of Israel's formation, God was in charge and there were patriarchs involved. Paul then continues, he says, and after that, and after that, he gave them the judges until Samuel the prophet. And if you know your Bible at all, right, there was this period of about 300 years when Israel had no formal leadership structure. What happened was when circumstances required, when there was an enemy at the gates, as it were, God would raise up a leader to take charge. And that was the case for about 300 years until the last judge, a man named Samuel, who was also a prophet, uh, uh, comes forward, and then there's a transition in leadership style. But what, Paul continues on. He says this, Then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And so there's this shift, right? We went from being the, the people of judges that God would raise up to a people of kings. And and Saul was not a good king, if you know your, your Old Testament. Um, he would eventually fall on his own sword. He had mental illness. God was not okay. He wasn't as interested in doing God's work as God had hoped. So God chooses a new king, David. And then that's where Paul continues in, in his retelling of the, the history of leaders in Israel. Paul says this, And when he had removed Saul, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David the son of Jesse a man after my own heart who will do all my will. And the reality is, is, is David is this revered figure. He's like a George Washington character of Israel. This founding father who did such good things for the nation that that memory sticks in the minds of the people of Israel for like a thousand years. Under David's reign, Israel prospered. It grew to be an empire. And the people lived in peace for a couple of generations, which is not something very common for the ancient world. And of David, Paul in his sermon continues on saying this. And of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a savior, Jesus, as he promised. Before his coming, John had proclaimed the baptism to all the people of Israel. And as John was finished uh, finishing his course, he said, What do you suppose that I am? I am not he. No, but behold, after me one is coming, whose sand, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. And so as as... Paul is going through the history of leadership, you know, the, the patriarchs, the judges, these kings. He gets to John the Baptist, a very famous precursor to Jesus's ministry. And he says, look, John the Baptist is such a big deal. He's a great prophet. Who might this great prophet uh, d- defer to? Someone whose sandals he's not worthy to untie. This is the idea of being a servant to a great king. And so Paul is starting to make the assertion here that Paul, that John the Baptist points to Jesus and says, here is the new boss. So, you know, if you don't know your Bible history and that kind of went one in the year and out the other, I understand that. Uh, if you are not familiar with Bible history, what you have in, in this sermon so far is Paul listing everyone who has been the boss. 
uh, the, the patriarchs, the judges, the kings. And Paul's point in our reading is that Jesus is the new boss. He is the king that King David talked about a long time ago and said, this is, there will be a future better king. Uh, Jesus is the king whose body would not see corruption. He's the one Israel had been hoping for. And the proof of this is in his resurrection from the dead, right? We love King David. King David's great. King David is still six feet underground, uh, but not even death could keep Jesus down. And that, friends, is proof that he is the new king, that Jesus is Lord, Jesus is the boss. And to the Jew Jewish audience of like, you know, 40 AD, this would have been perceived as very good news. The bosses of the Roman world, they were not good bosses. Those in power had any, a few check, uh, checks and balances. They had like no checks and balances. And the rest of the world served at their beck and call. Some historians have said it's something like 2% of the ancient world lived in positions of power and comfort and um, sort of ruling leadership, 2%. And the rest of the 98% were basically like hand-to-mouth farmers, conscripted soldiers or slaves and or other folks who were just destitute. And that 2% spent a lot of time and energy and effort keeping the 98% in line. They would tax them at unchallengeable rates. Uh, they would force them into questionable civic service. They would use the poor to service their baser appetites. You may remember, Jesus has a moral teaching about this. Jesus in Matthew 5, if you want to look it up, describes this Roman practice of conscription, where a Roman soldier in an occupied territory could legally compel a non-Roman citizen to stop whatever they were doing and help them with a task, right? Um, and so this Jewish community, they, they hated this because they'd be going about their business, they'd be trying to get their work done during the day, and, and then this Roman soldier would come by and say, you, stop what you're doing and carry my things, and they'd have to stop what they were doing and then play bellhop for the Roman soldier who's occupying their nation, right? Jesus envisioned a world where such a Jewish person wouldn't just help schlep the luggage of a Roman soldier for a mile or so. He imagines a world in which they would maybe cheerfully agree or passive-aggressively agree, depending on your interpretation. They would agree to not just do it for a mile, but they would do it for two miles. And so there's this new King Jesus who has conquered death by the good news of God, that it comes from the grace of God, right? Jesus as king envisions and presents for the world a deliverance from this oppressive, abusive, uncaring bureaucracy of pagan bosses, which exploits the world, uh, the bottom of the world to serve the top. And that's why this might be good news to hear about Jesus as king if you are living in the ancient world. Now, you and I are not Jewish people living in the ancient world. We are, in fact, Americans living in the year 2021. And Americans, you know, the news that there's a new boss in town, that there's a new sheriff in town, um, that's not really, that doesn't strike us as good news. Americans hate their bosses. Americans hate their kings. That's our whole sort of DNA of who we are as a nation, right? King George III, taxes for wars we didn't fight, the Boston Tea Party, no taxation without representation, um, right? We ha even have built into our constitution the bit about quartering soldiers, right? The Third Amendment, right? So that if one of the military members comes up to us and says, you stop what you're doing and, and house me and feed me tonight, um, we, uh, the, the military is constitutionally forbidden from doing that thing, right? We have the power of consent in this manner. 
Americans are not ones to sort of look around and say, oh, good, we have a new and um, benevolent master because we all like to think that we're masters of our own domain. We're not people who like to be identified as um, uh, we don't like to be ruled. That's part of the story we tell ourselves as a nation. Uh, and at first glance, this news that Jesus is Lord or that Jesus is the new king or that Jesus is the boss may not strike you as good news. We're people who have big yellow flags with snakes on them that say, don't tread on me. And I think the most American definition of freedom that I can come up with is something akin to, give me the bare minimum of rules that will allow me to do whatever I want to do without negatively impacting the people in my orbit, right? Um, we may like to think that we like Bob Dylan, but we believe like John Lennon, you know? Do we really want to be waiters now? Um, you know, don't serve anybody else, serve yourself. That tends to be the more American mindset. Even kiddos eventually understand this, don't they, intuitively? Did you have a favorite schoolyard rhyme when you were a child that involved terrible things uh, happening to your teacher? Maybe it was just me, but in my class and in all the little kids that I know, they all have these sort of schoolyard rhymes, little sing-songs, uh, they get passed down from generation to generation in the schools. And they sing songs about how teachers would slip on a banana peel and die, or teachers would get flushed down a toilet, or teachers would have bricks fall on their heads. Like even the straight A teacher's pets who um who are who are ready for summer vacation, you know, they sing along too, right? No more pencils, no more books, no more teachers' dirty looks. So from a very young age, kiddos learn that their bosses have authority. And they learn they need to follow authority, but they also learn to question authority. And they also learn to bond together with their peers in mutual resentment of that authority, no matter how good the authority is. And so this news that Jesus is the new king, he is the new judge, he is the new arbiter of right and wrong, he is the source of forgiveness and the fixer of the world in authority, right? This news, if you present it that way, kind of lands slant-wise for Americans who do not like to be given orders. While The Who may have been the great English rock band, it is a very Eng American sentiment to approach Jesus with the same kind of skepticism that they had in the song Won't Be Fooled Again, right? Meet the new boss, same as the old boss, right? The Jewish people experienced Paul's sermon as liberation, but in 2021, news of Jesus's kingship is met with suspicion, as if Jesus is here to dole out new rules, to compel us to carry his luggage and to use us for his own personal gratification. And yet, I think there are three things alluded to in our reading that make Jesus difficult, uh, different. I mean, maybe difficult too, but mostly different. I think there are three things alluded to in our reading today that make Jesus different. And I want to sort of present them to you in closing. And I want to make the case that this is good news for you, oh, American listening into this sermon. This is the podcast version too, right? Like this is a most, mostly American thing that we don't like to follow rules and, and try to be free and that sort of thing. But you know, if that's not your culture, it's certainly part of your anthropology that you don't like the rules. It's just how do you deal with it? Do you sort of fight against it like an American or do you suffer under it quietly with resentment like other people? But that's neither here nor there. My point being, no matter who you are, there is something that makes Jesus different from like the nun with a ruler who wrapped your hand as a kid. 
Um, there is um, something different about Jesus as if Jesus, I'm here to tell you, Jesus is not like the um, the boss who made you go pick up their personal dry cleaning as part of your job. If, if Jesus is not just another boss in the history of bosses, and we are simply his bellhops destined to carry his luggage for a mile or two whenever he asks, I can see how this would not be good news. But there are three things that I think make Jesus different, and I'm going to close with them. Because I want to convince you from our passage today about three things. Jesus is permanent, Jesus is liberating, and Jesus is forgiving. Jesus is permanent, Jesus is liberating, and Jesus is forgiving. I'm going to go through these things and close with you and and talk about them. First, um, the text tells us that Jesus is permanent. Paul quotes a psalm uh, in our sermon today. He says, You will not let your Holy One see corruption. Which he takes to mean that on one level... Uh, that that the body of the king will not decay. He not just thinks of corruption as if, you know, moral corruption, but the body itself experiencing physical corruption, right? Jesus died once for all. He's not dying again. And so when it comes to Jesus, we don't have to worry about the same concerns of the who, right? Meet the new boss, same as the old boss. Well, as far as God is concerned, when it comes to Jesus, there is no new boss, There's no dynasty where the the power passes on to a next generation. There's no promotion. There's no investment in the next generation of leaders. I mean, some of you, I'm sure, have been in a place where you've had a great job and you loved your job, but you sat there and you thought, you know what? When my boss retires, I don't think there's anyone who's going to match it up, and I don't trust the higher-ups at the company, so I'm going to just polish up my resume, you know, when I hear that my boss is retiring, right? There's none of that with Jesus because Jesus is it. Like it or not, we are stuck with him. So Jesus is a different leader, unlike King David, who again is still six feet underground. Unlike that, Jesus has risen. And so there's a permanent feature to Jesus's kingship, his bossness, his lordship uh, that Paul is alluding to in the sermon today. The second thing that makes this different, why this is actually liberating news, is that Jesus himself is liberating. Paul says that by him, by Jesus, everyone who believes is freed from everything which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Now, the law of Moses is a a really powerful thing. It refers to the great sort of um, law system that God gave the people of Israel in the Old Testament, right? Not just the Ten Commandments, but all of the laws that follow those Ten Commandments. And this was a, a set of rules that sort of built the culture of Israel up. And um, these were laws that were intended to be ultimately liberating. Like if you followed the law of Israel uh, in the ancient world, you were liberated from many things. You were liberated from ignorance of how to live a good life, right? Um, We now know the right way to act and behave with each other in such a manner as to thrive on the earth. And so there's actual direction about what it looks like to live a good life. And so you're free from ignorance of how to live a good life. And not only do they liberate from from ignorance, the law liberated from uh, the pagan gods that were competing for their attention, right? There were other pagan gods in the region, and these gods ultimately existed as toxic bosses in their own right. But the law of Moses liberated from the people from their um, the need to serve all of these other gods, which demanded things like pounds of flesh, and um, they demanded um, all sorts of terrible things, which is a sermon in its own right, but. 
this toxic religion of other cultures, um, the law of Moses put up boundaries and said, if you follow my rules, you're not going to be uh, enslaved to these pagan gods. And then the other thing the law of Moses did was it liberated people from their identity as a slave. No longer did they create the people of Israel view themselves with a slave mentality. The law of Moses was designed to create a culture and an ethical system that inculcated the people with the sense that they were God's beloved. So the law of Moses freed the people of Israel from many things. But you know what the law of Israel did not free them from? It did not free them from death. People still died when following the law of Moses. It did not liberate them from, from sin. Um, they still sinned, and they still did bad things, and they still failed to live up to the standards God wanted. It didn't free them from selfishness. It didn't free them from the wicked serendipities of Satan. And so the law of Moses was liberating, but it was not liberating enough. Paul wants us to see that this new boss is indeed willing and able to fully liberate us from that which cannot, we cannot be freed from by the law. Third and final, the text tells us that Jesus is forgiving. Uh, Paul says, Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. I wonder if you've ever had a boss who was forgiving and advocated for you at the same time. I wonder if you've ever had a boss who was genuinely interested in having you flourish and succeed. Imagine a boss who was completely concerned with your professional success, who would let you try and fail, but didn't hold you to the consequences of those failures and took them on itself. You present the failure project to the board and, and people are getting angry at you, but your boss stands up and said, I approved it. This is really ultimately about me. And all of a sudden the board's ire turns to this other person. I mean, it's the same way with teachers, right? I wonder if you've ever had a teacher who saw something in you and created opportunities for you to learn and go grow and, and try and mess up, but ultimately you didn't fear failure and you didn't feel fear like um, love was going away because ultimately the teacher was forgiving, understanding, and really simply investing in your own success. And if you've had a boss or a teacher like that, like you know what I'm talking about because all of a sudden... Your boss isn't your boss. Your boss is your advocate, your mentor, and your champion. You actually want to help your boss when he or she is struggling with their luggage. You want to play bellhop and help them out. You don't want a new boss. You want the same old boss because what boss could possibly be better? And what Paul is getting at in our text today, friends, is that Jesus Christ is that kind of boss. He's that kind of Lord, that kind of king. Someone who covers from us when we make our mistakes out of a love and desire to see us succeed, someone who advocates for us to hire ups and compels them to invest in us, someone who is not completely, who's completely non-competitive. He doesn't view us as competition to what he's up to because he believes that success is not mutually exclusive. Uh, Jesus is a teacher who isn't just cramming information into our brains because it's his job, but he's a teacher who is fully invested in building a path to our future, who no longer calls us students, but calls us what? friends. And so we as Americans, I think, can maybe look at this in a different light because if Bob Dylan is right, and I think he is, that we've got to serve somebody, well, you can't go wrong serving Jesus. Because if you're going to have a boss, right, find a boss that will die on a cross for you. Find one who's going to forgive you all your sins and cover for you when you make mistakes. Find the teacher who counts you as a friend. 
because this new boss, friends, is not the same as the old boss. Dead and gone are the tyrants past who forced you into servitude, and the petty tyrants of our age who will one day be gone as well. But this king, my friends, will not see corruption, and his love for us is forever. In Jesus' name, amen. My like to wear cotton, my like to wear silk, my like to drink whiskey, my like to drink milk. Might like to eat caviar, you might like to eat bread. Maybe sleeping on the floor, sleeping in a king size bed, but you're gonna have to serve somebody. Yes, indeed, you're gonna have to serve somebody. Serve somebody. Well, it may be the devil, or it may be the Lord, but you're gonna have to serve somebody. Church in Ligonier, Pennsylvania.